0: Our gracious Heavenly Father, we just praise you, Lord, for who you are, for all your goodness to us. I just pray that you would help me to have clarity of thought, clarity of speech. I pray for these dear ladies, that you would help them as life is busy and crazy and it's hard to shut everything down to be able to focus in. So I just pray that you would be with all of us that um, we would just love you more, that we would love your word more, and it's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. All right, so um, my friend Tony sent me a couple little things to encourage my heart this week, and I loved him so much, and it went along so well with my lesson that I asked her permission to uh, use them. So just a quote by Andrew Murray um, that's from his book, Let Us Draw Near. But he said, true religion is a thing of the heart, an inward life. It is only as the desire of the heart is fixed on God, the whole heart seeking for God, giving its love and finding its joy in God, that a man can draw near to God. The heart of man was expressly planned and created, and endowed with all its powers that it might be capable of receiving and enjoying God and his love. A man can have no more religion, or holiness, or love, or salvation, or of God, than he has in his heart. As much as a man, or woman, Has of the inward heart religion, so much has he of salvation, and no more. As far as Christ, through his spirit, is within the heart, making the thoughts and the will like-minded with himself, so far can a man's worship and service be acceptable to God. God asks for the heart. Alas! How many Christians serve him still with the service of the old covenant? There are seasons for Bible reading and praying and church going. But when one notices how speedily and naturally and happily, as soon as it is freed from restraint, the heart turns to worldly things. One feels how little there is of the heart in it. It is not the worship of a true heart, of the whole heart. The heart with its life and love and joy has not yet found in God its highest good. The true heart is nothing but true consecration. The spirit that longs to live holy for God, that gladly gives up everything that it might live holy for him, and that above all yields up itself as the key of the inner life into his keeping and rule. So a little bit long, but just a great way for us to kind of settle our hearts and our minds as we turn to James chapter four in your Bibles. So we're gonna talk about that, wanting to draw near to God, wanting to serve him with our whole heart. James chapter 4, and then if you didn't see it, there is a stand that looks like this one out in the front that has notes if you desire to have them. So James chapter 4, we're going to start with verse 7 and read down to verse 10. James says, submit therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Now, as we're thinking through the book of James, we need to remember James is a very practical book. Often it's been called the Proverbs of the New Testament. He has short witty sayings, zings them right to the heart, Um, just very applicable, very practical so James uh, John MacArthur said James wrote with a passionate desire for his readers to be uncompromisingly obedient to the word of God. He complements Paul's emphasis on justification by faith with his own emphasis on spiritual fruitfulness demonstrating true faith. So ladies, as, we, as Yvonne taught last week, You know, we won't be able to move forward with proper godly disciplines with the right heart motivation unless God has changed your heart, taken away that heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh that longs to please him and to love him. Only then can we please him and love him appropriately. We can do right things like she told us, But we can't do it for his glory unless he's given us that heart of flesh. Now, as we think through these things, we desire for all of us to be growing in our faith. So our book is not a self-help book or 10 easy steps to a better and easier life. A lot of times it's easy for us to slip in that mindset. Oh, if I was just more disciplined. My life wouldn't be so chaotic and I wouldn't be so like blah all the time. I wouldn't be the queen of flying by the seat of my pants, right? If only, oh, if I only could get this together, then, then life would be good. If I could just, you know, carve up enough time to this and that, then my life would be easier. But ladies, when the benefits of being disciplined become the end goal, it's a wrong end goal. The glory of God should be our end goal, and the disciplines be our avenue as we reach for, giving God glory. So but that the benefits of being disciplined can't be our short-term game. We have a marathon we're running, and we're giving glory to God as we run along the way. So glory to God must be our end goal in living the disciplined life or we end up in a ditch every time. Either we end up in the ditch of disregarding discipline in self-indulgence or we go the other way and we end up in the ditch of rigid self-righteousness. Instead, we need to stay focused on the Lord and his word, recognizing, yes, we need to do these things, but it's not for our checkmark mark. It's not for us patting ourselves in the back. Look, my performance was good today, so God's happy today. No, it's in gratitude and love, and I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay, so as we prepare, ladies, as we prepare ourselves for the adventure of being disciplined, and it is definitely an adventure. So James has six rapid-fire commands to help us as we begin thinking through the different aspects Of being a godly woman. So, the first command that James gives us is that we need to, number one on your outlines, submit. Submit. Barbara in our book gave us the definition submission is yielding to the authority of another. And that's a good one. But I did go talk to my buddy, Noah Webster, and it was fabulous. I liked it so much, I put it on your outlines. So what did Noah Webster say? He said, it's a yielding of one's will to the will or appointment of a superior. This is the one that gets me every time. Without murmuring. Do we know what murmuring is? That is an old 1828 word. That means no whining no complaining. So yielding one's will to the will or appointment of a superior without murmuring. And then I loved what he said. So this is, so Noah Webster will give you the definition and then he'll give you an example. And this was his example for this definition. Entire and cheerful submission to the will of God is a Christian Duty of prime excellence. We like prime rib. We like prime excellence, top excellence. He's saying, so we should embrace the fact that entire and cheerful submission to the will of God should be the very first duty that we embrace and view it as I can go no higher, I can do no better than submit my will to the Father's will. So, A, as we think it through, we need to think through the motivation of submission. The motivation of submission. We see there in four seven it says, submit therefore to God. So, put your finger on that word, therefore, and ask yourself, what is the therefore there for? Often, therefore... Indicates there's a purpose or reason for the command being given or a statement being made. Often in the immediate surrounding context. So in our case, we scooch our finger up and see and directly in the verse above. In verse 6, he says, But he, meaning the Lord, gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble, not the hungry, the humble. Everybody pray, my mouth will work. So God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So because God gives grace, we need to humbly submit. So those two are interwoven. What a great motivation. We are assured from scripture over and over again, God gives grace to the humble. Now, you read in your chapters something that I would call a wrong motivation for submission. And I wanted to read it to you guys, because if you read it and kind of were like, I'm going to be honest, first time I read it, I was a little bit like, mm, where are we going with this? So, but she ended up in a great spot. But in, um, I'm going to read to you from our book. She gave an illustration of a child psychiatrist. So um, if, if you have your book and you want to come with me, it's, I'm starting on page 37, So she says, noted child psychiatrist, Dr. Robert Coles, tells us how during his training at Children's Hospital in Boston, he discovered the importance of training a child in obedience. Great! He, assigned, he was assigned to a 10-year-old boy who had been rude, impatient, demanding, and without self-control during their sessions together. Dr. Coles tried reasoning with him, hoping to discover why he was behaving as he was. But each session only increased his own feelings of helplessness. Weeks passed in the same fashion, the boy having his way in the doctor's office and the doctor without a clue how to help. I bet you every mom in this room right now is like, oh, I can tell you what to help. But we'll keep reading. One snowy day when the boy arrived, he casually took off his galoshes and threw them dripping slush on the doctor's chair. Dr. Coles recalls that he instinctively felt rage welling up inside him. But at the same time, he heard an inner voice telling him to discover why the boy had done it. Fighting to control himself, he walked to the chair, picked up the wet galoshes, put them in the hall outside his office, and slammed the door hard. When the boy responded that he wanted them inside the office, the doctor shouted, nothing doing. They were words his own parents had used during his childhood when their patients had worn thin with his behavior. An astonishing thing happened. The boy sat down looked as close to repentant as the doctor had ever seen and asked if there was something he could use to clean up the mess he had made. Finally, the doctor was able to help this boy. Dr. Coles writes, we are afraid to impose the obvious limits children need, in many cases because we think some psychological theory requires such an attitude ironically if modern psychiatry has learned anything it is a healthy respect for the darker side of our mental life and awareness of how important it is for all of us to have a sensible kind of authority over our impulses lest they rule us and yes ruin us not to mention others we know now later on she clarifies thankfully so she correctly says the darker side of our mental life is nothing less than rebellion against our creator God. But I want us to think through this example. Obviously, we would not encourage you to train in this way for obedience. So, But I want you to think through, why am I saying that? Because a lot of people would look at this example and say, huh, finally, something got through to that kid, just you can quietly think in your minds. But as we're thinking this through, even the psychiatrist who is not bowing the knee to a creator God saw the need for authority in that little boy's life and the consequences of not having that authority. But again, just to make sure there's no confusion, we would not recommend handling a disobedient child in this way. That is not training in obedience. Proverbs 26.4 says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will also be like him. So what was the psychiatrist's response to that boy? Anger. Slammed door. Shouted. I'm not going to encourage you guys to parent your children in that way. So, but, okay, now we know we don't do that, but... We need good examples, don't we? Well, one of, some of my heroes, Lois and Eunice, are great examples. So listen to what scripture says. 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17, familiar verses, but Paul is talking to Timothy and he tells them, "'And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings "'which are able to give you the wisdom "'that leads to salvation.' Through faith, which is in Christ Jesus, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So as we're thinking through good examples, we are using scripture to bring to bear our little children's black heart of sin. Even teeny, teeny, tiny children can act in very rebellious, angry ways, can they not? And we have been given the privilege of teaching them and using scripture to point them of, no, no, that's not how we act. God commands obedience and this is what it looks like. Let's try it again. Okay, let's try it again. Okay, let's try it again. again. Some moms, they feel like that's all they do all day long. Let's try it again. Let's try it again. So now sometimes we subtly act like the little boy and the psychiatrist. We are only motivated to submit because the other person is, you know, they're bigger, they're stronger than we are, and they are angry. So we can often only obey God because we know he is bigger and stronger And we think he's angry, so we sigh and all right and reluctantly do what he says to do. Is that how we subtly think about the disciplines? Is a, fine, I know this is what I'm supposed to do, so I guess I'll have to be more disciplined. And why are we doing that? What's our motivation there? Just because God is infinitely bigger and stronger than us And we think, if I don't, he'll be angry, so I'll do this. So where is this entire and cheerful submission that Noah Webster told us about? We need to think properly about the right motivations for submission and rightly about the character and nature of our great God. He is the one that gives us grace upon grace. He is the one who gives us life and breath, who gives us every good thing. He is all-wise, all-kindness. He is love, so much so that he sent his only begotten son to die on the cross, appease the wrath that should have been meant for us. So why do we hesitate to trust him with all that we have? Why are we not eager to jump out of bed in the morning? And ladies, I'm not a morning person. I will openly admit that. I need at least two cups of coffee flowing through my veins So, but why aren't we eager to jump out of bed in the morning and open the scriptures and say, how can I obey my Lord today? And have that kind of mental attitude towards it, not, okay, I guess I better do this. Now, our feelings, we we are still carrying around our sinful nature. Our natural feelings, oftentimes, we do have to fight them. I understand that. But do you have a want to To want to. That's the kind of thing we need to focus our mind, how to cheerfully obey in gratitude for who He is and all that He has done. Barbie Hughes later on in that chapter says it is the love of God that motivates us to follow Christ's example and enables us to loosen our grip of our plans for our lives placing ourselves squarely under God's loving rule each day. So as we're thinking through the, the nature of our God and the gratitude that we have, sometimes songs are really helpful. Isaac Watts wrote one that says, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? <laughs> I knew I wouldn't make it through this one. Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Was it for sins that I had done, he groaned upon the tree? Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Well, might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when Christ? The mighty maker died. For man, the creature's sin. Thus might I hide my blushing face while his dear cross appears to solve my heart in thankfulness and melt mine eyes to tears. But drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. It is all that I can do. So, Ladies, do our eyes melt with that gratitude, that amazing love, that amazing pity? John Calvin said, men will never worship God with a sincere heart or be roused to fear and obey him with sufficient zeal until they properly understand how much they are indebted to his mercy. So ladies, just like Yvonne so eloquently showed us last week, the debt of love we owe is great. It is good and right for us to replay it in mind, to remind ourselves of the amazingness, remind ourselves of the worminess of ourselves, And then remind ourselves of the greatness of our Savior. So not only do we need a proper motivation for submission, but we also need an accurate understanding of B on your outlines. The receiver of our submission. The receiver of our submission. And where else can we go but to the word of God to understand how great God is and how he kindly reveals to us. He is not a stern taskmaster, but a loving heavenly father. Just listen to a few verses about him. 2 Samuel twenty two thirty three God is my strong fortress, and he sets the blameless in his way. Psalm 32, 7, you are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Psalm 54, 4, behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the sustainer of my soul. Psalm 59:17. oh, my strength. I will sing praises to you, for God is my stronghold, the God who shows me loving kindness. In Isaiah 12, 2, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. So, why do we not... Thankfully, fully, cheerfully submit to all that he asks. When he is the one who is our stronghold, he is the one who's going to provide the strength that we need. He is the one that will surround us. He is the one that shows us loving kindness. So James's first command to submit puts us in the right place to be able to, number two on your outlines, resist. Resist. Number two, resist. Look back down to verse seven. He's saying, submit therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So A, we need to consider the proper order of resisting. The proper order of resisting. Notice there, you must submit to God before you are able to resist the enemy. Have you ever thought of this? My self-sufficient pride is mimicking the enemy. It's not going to help me defeat the enemy. Trying to doing it on my own is not going to help anything. A humble submission to our heavenly father, trying to seek his face early, trying to walk in his way, is going to be the best way to resist the enemy. Warren Rearsby said, Before we can stand before Satan, we must bow before God. Remember, Peter resisted the Lord and ended up submitting to Satan. So, that humble coming before the Lord and uttering our utter dependence on him is the only way we can stand fast. So let's talk a little bit about this enemy that we are resisting. That's be on your outlines. The enemy that we are resisting. Just like we focused on the Lord as revealed in his word, God again was gracious to us to warn us about the enemy and to tell us what he is like. So again, just a few verses. There's more. But just a few as we're talking about our enemy. It's very important because society around us paints a picture that's very different than scripture paints, does it not? Very much so. And the more pagan our society becomes, the more we need to be grounded in the, and rooted in the word of God to have clarity about what he is like. John 8, says, You are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks it from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. 1 Peter 5 8 says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. 1 John 3:8 says, The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning that practices is a, is a mode of life, not just one who sins, but one who practices it continually. The son of God, John says, appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. And Ephesians 6, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. So one of the Puritans, Thomas Manton said, we must not fear him the devil the devil has no power to force us but only the skill to persuade us so think about that he cannot force us oh but he's skilled he is skilled to persuade us distressful fear gives him the advantage We are to resist him, standing firm in the faith, as 1 Peter 5, 9 says. And again, we must not give the devil a foothold or opportunity. Anger may make way for malice. And when the first thoughts of sin do not grieve us, the actual practice of them is not far off. Do you hear what he's trying to tell us? Right at the instant we're having those first thoughts, That rage walling within us, if we are not grieved over that sin right there, we're already halfway there to committing the sin altogether. So we are encouraged by Scripture to be vigilant, that Satan not be able to successfully scheme against us. And what is the best method of resisting the devil? Submitting to God. So he's doing this contrast here you submit to God resist the devil. So active resisting means active submitting. You say that again. Active resisting means active submitting. The devil is very intentional in his schemes against us, our families, our church. He hates us and ultimately hates God. Notice, we are never encouraged in Scripture to go after him, to fight against him. What's the language? Resist, stand firm. Resist, stand firm. That is the language we are given. We don't need to run around rebuking Satan. We don't need to run around and try to stir things up or command him. That is not our place. Our place is to submit to God and resist him in his schemes. So, but we also tend to forget, don't we, that our war is not against flesh and blood, but a spiritual warfare. We get so bogged down in the doing of the dishes, doing of the laundry, paying of the bills, going and renewing our car registrations, all the things, right? So we're constantly just, doing the things and doing the things and doing the things, and it just becomes rote. We, we, we stop being intentional about anything. Yes, the dishes, the laundry, the paying of the bills, they all have to be done, but we have to remember we are in a war. We are fighting battles. Do we view those things, those activities, do we intentionally look them as opportunities to bring glory to God, submitting to his plan for us, Or are we just, you know, kind of glibly coasting along, just reacting to our day as it smashes us in the face? What are we doing? It's so good for us to stop and think, okay, am I just reacting to whatever is happening in this moment? Or am I being intentional in the way that I want to bring glory to Christ? If you're just reacting, you're ripe for stumbling because you're not actively submitting yourself to the Lord. And you say, okay, Rach, but you're telling me the dishes have to be done, the laundry has to be done, the bills have to be paid, and that car registration is not going to renew itself, right? So just some ideas as we're going through, because sometimes we can feel like it's just mundane life. And just me, little ponug me in the middle of Nowersville, Tennessee, doing my thing, nobody knows me. But yet, we have the precious privilege to bring glory to God in the mundane things. So maybe as you're folding that laundry, you're praying for the person who wears the clothes. Now, that one I did not come up with. That is our Martha Fairfield. That's her habit. And Angela, her daughter, is the one who told me, and I was like, I love that. So that's a way you can be actively submitting to God as you do something that just necessarily needs to be done. Or as you're Paying the bills, actively praying over them, seeking for God to give you the wisdom to steward his money well and to have wisdom in how you're using the money he has blessed you with and resisting the urge not to worry because paying the bills is usually a, a huge opportunity of worry, is it not? Or two, you could prop your memory verse card when you're doing your dishes. So that way, instead of complaining in your mind about the dishes, not that we ever do this, but instead of complaining in your head about doing the dishes, you could be focusing on scripture. So those are just a few ways that we can actively resist the enemy. And then we will see see the product of resisting. The product of resisting Verse 7 again says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So one of the commentators, Hebert, if you ever want good commentaries, Hebert is a great guy. But he said, as God's inveterate enemy, the devil is constantly engaged in seeking to subvert the allegiance of God's people by leading them to self-centered and world-centered attitudes and activities. Satan is the prime and most perfect enemy of God, the beginner and finisher of all pride, leading to apostasy from the supreme to whom all things should be submissive. He cannot lead a man into sin without the consent of the man's will. As long as the man's will is submissive to the control and guidance of the Holy Spirit, he can stand victorious against all the seductive arts of the devil. As the defeated foe Satan now has no power over the Christian except the power of seduction, but he is a persistent foe. When confronted with the sword of the Spirit, he surely flees, but... He will return again and again and again. That's why we need to put on that armor. We need to have that sword of the spirit in our hand at all times, figuratively speaking. If you have it hidden in your heart, it's ready to use. So just why? another reason why we want to encourage you to memorize scripture. So that way you are ready when those temptation comes, when those thoughts comes, you can actively submit your will to God's will. So Martin Luther in A Mighty Fortress, verse number three said, says, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure, one little Word shall fell him. Now, word of Christ, not us, just to be clear. Christ will be the victor over Satan. So, John Blanchard said, and I loved this there is only one view more welcome than the backside of the devil, and that is the face of God. So as we see, we need to submit and resist. Now James encourages us to, number three on your outlines, draw near. Draw near. If you drop your eyes down to verse eight, it says, simply, draw near to God. So we need to talk first about A, the direction of drawing near. The direction of drawing near. Now, the phrase "drawing near should be making your cross-reference bells going off. It should sound familiar to you. So where else in Scripture do we see that phrase? Well, the first one I think of is one of my faves, Hebrew 4.16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. I love that draw near with confidence. It's cheerful. We know we are welcomed there. And to we're there to receive mercy and find grace in the time to help in the time of need. Hebrews 10.22 also says, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So one of the commentary writes that draw near was used of the priests in the tabernacle, duly qualified to approach God with their sacrifices. It was also used in a wider sense of man's approach to God in worship. Thus, the term conveys the thought of entering into communion with God as acceptable worshipers. Such drawing near to God marks those who long to come into closest possible relation to him. Insincere approach is assured of God's favorable response, and he will come near to you. Like the returning prodigal son, they will find God waiting to welcome and to restore them. So we see that our direction is to draw near to God, and we will see be the result of drawing near. The result of drawing near. So draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. What a precious promise. Now, just to clarify, this is not God sitting in his heavens, just hoping that we're going to come and Come draw near to him. This is James pointing out to us believers what ought to happen. At the beginning of chapter four, he was pointing out the source of their quarrels and conflicts, it was their own pleasures. So these are people in sin. Here we have a snapshot of what true repentance and restoration of right relationship with God. We should constantly be seeking to have our relationship with the Lord be closer, richer, and deeper than the day before. One of the commentaries said, If we are true to James, we will see this command to draw near as the first obedience required of those who have subordinated themselves to God and propose to resist the, le- the devil. For James is not just snatching haphazard commands out of the air. He is setting out for us an ordered program of obedience. The first element in the conflict is the central battle to live near God. The battle for discipline in Bible reading, prayer, private and public worship, feasting at the Lord's table, devoting ourselves to Christian fellowship, Cultivating every appointed avenue whereby we can draw near to him. Fellowship with God and its consequent blessing of his fellowship with us does not just happen. We cannot drift into it any more than we can drift into holiness. It is our first obedience. So as we think through that, are you cultivating a heart To draw near to the Lord. And then we will be talking about some of these disciplines. But are we loving them? Are we treasuring them? Are we devoted to them? Are we devoted to our sisters to encourage and sharpen as we all start this adventure and this journey together? Are we cheerleading each other on? Are we just saying, oh, I know, girl, it's just so hard not especially encouraging. Is it hard sometimes? Yes. So yes, we're going to be open with each other, but it's a hugging and setting each other, walking this journey together of, but we can do it because Christ is with us. Christ goes before us and we can draw near to the Lord. We need to keep close to his side. So we've looked at James's commands to submit to resist, to draw near. And now we are going to see the need to number four, cleanse and purify. Cleanse and purify. Drop your eyes down to verse eight. It says, draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So here he's got some pretty strong language I think he's trying to wake his readers up and wake us up too so a that cleanse your hands you sinners he's talking about an outer cleansing outer cleansing Hebert says that cleanse your hands employs the language of the ceremonial cleansing for the priestly approach to God But it is now employed with a moral connection to denote a definite cleansing from the defilement of sin. This figurative usage appears in the Old Testament as the instruments of ethical conduct, their hands are symbolic of their defiling deeds. So these are the deeds we do on the outside that we can observe of each other, where If we sin on the outside, other people around us know we are because it's on the outside. You can look out good on the outside. We'll talk about the inside in a minute. But we got enough work cut out for us with the stuff on the outside. Am I right? And James here is trying to strongly say, cleanse your hands, you sinners. So, but again, pushing us because what was the phrase right before that? Draw near to God. Now, notice he did not say, cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded, then draw near to God. There's no clean up first. It's the Lord is the one who gives us the grace to cleanse those things. So he is the one who forgives. He is the one who gives us the strength to do the cleansing. And we give all glory and honor back to him. So we need outer cleansing of our actions, but also we need B, inner purification. He says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. That second line, purify your hearts, refers to the inward aspect of some ceremonial cleansing. The word double-minded literally means two-souled, trying to hold on to God, and yet, hankering for the world, a commentator said. It describes a struggle in the mind between the heart and the hands. The hands are not fulfilling what the heart knows is right. Therefore, guilty of trying to serve two masters. The end result for the believer is spiritual instability. And have we not felt that? Are you like, oh, I know what's right right now, but I really, really don't want to do it. And it's that habit of training and having self-control, saying, Lord, everything in me is screaming to have my own way, screaming to indulge myself. And yet, I know that won't bring glory to you, so help me have self-control. Strengthen me that I will, from the inside out... Respond well to the circumstance around me. That word hearts there in verse 8 represents the inner man. So often it says the seat of the motives and attitudes, the center of the personality. It can include the emotions and feelings, but also includes the thinking process. So it's not just how we feel our heart you know, oh, my heart just bleeds for him. We're talking about our emotions, right? And yet when scripture uses it, it's also including what you're thinking, affecting what you're feeling. And then also that double-minded, he calls them, you double-minded. So it's that hesitation or vacillation between two or more opinions. This person, in a sense, the commentator said, had a divided loyalty, which is manifest by Indecision and doubting. Some might see such a person as fickle or given to erratic changeableness. This is the man or woman who is uncertain about the truth of something. And again, double minded, your cross reference bells should be clanging. What does that remind us? Well, earlier in James, he says in chapter one, I'm going to read five and six and then skip to eight, he says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, Let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So what is he saying there? Ladies, how many of us really truly desire wisdom? for our lives. We have lots of decisions to make. Each one of us, it looks a little different according to the season of life we're in, but we all have decisions to make. And I think if I asked each one of you, I'm pretty confident every single one of you would be like, yes, I would love the wisdom of God as I make these decisions. And yet, how much time do we spend asking God for That wisdom? And do we truly believe his word when it says he gives to all generously and without reproach? Do we sometimes approach God and be like, "Mm, maybe he'll give it to me? I don't know. Or do we draw near with confidence to the throne of grace to get that help and that mercy in the time of need? So it's that doubting that makes us unstable, that double-minded way. It's, no, God will provide for me. Maybe not the way that we think. And for sure, I've never one time in my Christian life gone, I have arrived. I am now wise. But I am getting a little bit better at being confident that God will accomplish what he wants to accomplish in my life if I would just trust him for one more step. One more step, one more step. So drawing near to God while seeing the need for cleansing and purification often leads us to the need for us to five on your outlines or letter V. Helping you practice your Roman numerals this morning. Be miserable and mourn and weep. So, that need for cleansing, that need for purification leads to the need for being miserable and mourn and weep. What does that mean? Let's read verse nine together. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, this verse might cause confusion because you're like, Rachel, I've read my Bible. I've read different things in Psalms saying our joy comes in the morning. What's going on here? Has James forgotten that verse? No. As we're thinking through, okay, that outer purification cleansing and that inner purification, we have, A, the reason for sorrow. The reason for sorrow Spurgeon says, if the previous verses have rightly accused you of sin, confess your guilt with shame and sorrow, and so come to Christ, imploring pardon. So that phrase there, be miserable, means to be afflicted, to be sorrowful over wretched circumstances. It speaks of the emotions that emanate from torment, whether external external or internal. It's used by the Old Testament prophets who generally convey news of a time of great and imminent danger. Keeping that thought in mind, his Jewish readers who would have been familiar with the Old Testament prophets would understand in that using this verb, this is the only use in the New Testament, James has placed before his hearers a matter which is not a trifle, but very, very serious. And they, as an entire nation, would understand the seriousness of that. So the Old Testament prophets warning of the judgment to come because of their sinfulness. And then James uses that same wordage. They would have immediately known exactly what he was referring to. That word mourning there is a grief and sorrow caused by profound loss and is often associated with death or great tragedy, as would or should occur as an outward manifestation of James's reader's sense of wretchedness. MacArthur says, Of the nine terms used for sorrow, the one used here is the strongest and the most severe. It represents the deepest, most heartfelt grief and was generally reserved for grieving over the death of a loved one. The word carries the idea of deep inner agony, which may or may not be expressed by outward weeping, wailing, or lament. But he goes on, James does, to say weep. That weep there expresses mourning and sorrow of all kinds. The picture is a person who is lamenting with sobbing, Indeed, an outflow of tears is a healthy sign that one is broken over their sin. Now, ladies, we don't have tears every time we repent of sin, but what is when is the last time we really grieved over our sin? That we meditated on the fact of how much our Savior sacrificed and suffered because of that sin how it deeply grieves the Holy Spirit within us when we sin. So, B, let's also talk about the, pro- the result of proper mourning. The result of proper mourning. Psalm 119.67 says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. And one of my very uh Puritans, Thomas Watson, gave a really good, it was very long, I only chose a few, and that's really heart-wrenching because I want it to be so helpful, but we just don't have enough time for, for me to be able to read it all. But he says this when thinking about this passage and thinking of our own sin and the way we should grieve over it. He says, number one, the Christian weeps for indwelling sin. The law in his members, the outbursts of first risings of sin. His nature is a poisoned fountain. A regenerate person grieves that he carries it with him, that it is an in enmity with God. His heart is like a wide sea, which there are innumerable creeping things, vain, sinful thoughts. A child of God laments hidden wickedness. Number two, he says, a godly man weeps for his clinging corruption. If he could get rid of sin, there would be some comfort, but he can't shake off this viper. Sin cleaves to him like leprosy. Though a child of God forsakes his sin, yet sin will not forsake him. Of course, we have hope because one day, God will glorify us and cleanse us forever. But Thomas Watson says, while we were here, while we are in the struggle against sin, he wants us to know godly sorrow is excellent. It is a good and right thing for us to focus on our sin in order to sorrow over it. But it needs to be a godly sorrow, not a self-centered, woe is me, I can never get it right, because that's just centered around self. A godly sorrow is one that focuses on Christ. There is as much difference between the sorrow of a godly man and the sorrow of a wicked man, he says, as between the water of a spring, which is clear and sweet, and the water of the sea, which is salt and brackish. A godly man's sorrow has these Three qualifications. Godly sorrow is inward. It is a a sorrow of the soul. Hypocrites disfigure their faces, but godly sorrow goes deep. It is a pricking at the heart. Godly sorrow is sincere. It is more for the evil than is in sin, than the evil which follows after sin. It is more for the spot than the sting. Hypocrites weep for sin only as it brings affliction. Hypocrites never send forth the streams of their tears except when God's judgments are approaching. So do you you hear what he's saying there? Do you only weep over the consequences of your sin? Or do you weep over it as it is happening because you know you are dishonoring Christ? It's a big difference with godly sorrow And then number three he says Godly sorrow is influential what does he mean by that it makes the heart better by the sadness of the countenance the heart is made better Ecclesiastes says Divine tears not only wet but they wash they purge out of, they purge out the love of sin So ladies as we think about this, As we think about godly sorrow, one thing we need to think through, too often we and our society around us seeks to drown out conviction of sin. Just drown it out. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to think about it. I'm going to turn away from it. I'll just distract myself. And now we have things in our hands 24-7 that if we want to avoid the uncomfortable, the pain, the sorrow of looking at our sin, we can just scroll and distract our minds. And distract our hearts. Now God is able and He is greater than a screen, but we need to be sensitive to that. Why am I why am I scrolling? Do I have a desire to avoid that conviction? Or two, if your children are dealing with conviction, we don't pound them to dust, but also don't always alleviate that conviction right away. Send them to God. Have them pray to God. Don't distract them with other things. It is okay for our children to sorrow over their sin. That is good and right and healthy for their souls. They need to know they're sinning against a great God who loves them so very much. And uh, Ron has mentioned it more than once, hospital visits, He said, it's so sad because you go into the hospital, here are people who are literally getting ready to meet their maker, and what are they doing? They're staring at a screen up on the wall. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with that screen itself, but instead of dealing with their soul, they're staring at something that's temporal. It's nothingness, and they're distracting their minds He has a book that that recounts the, the last words of different men. And now with drugs and with screen distractions, people oftentimes slip out into eternity distracted instead of focusing their mind on what's to come. So those things are weighty and heavy, but it is good for us to think them through to help our motivation to be correct In verse 9, the end of it says, Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Now, it's very helpful to know the demanded reversal relates to their past sinful pleasures. This does not mean that the laughter in itself is evil, nor is James prohibiting future laughter for his readers. Uh, One of the commentators said, James is no killjoy. And then points out laughter in the Old Testament is often, and how it's being used here, it's often the scornful laughter of the fool who blithely refuses to take sin seriously. Fools mock at sin. They're not going to take it seriously. That's the kind of laughter that James is going after. He says, take your sin seriously mourn over it, let your laughter be changed to mourning, your joy to gloom. Stop distracting yourself. Stop avoiding dealing with your sin. So James has commanded that we submit, draw near, cleanse, and purify, be miserable, and mourn, and weep. And lastly, number six, he tells us to humble ourselves. So, we're starting our passage with submission, which requires humility, and we're going to wrap up that package with another good dose of humility. He says in verse 10 Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. That word humble there, James commands his readers to submit voluntarily that they might be made low. The idea then is not be humbled, but allow yourself to be humbled or placed in a lower position. Permit yourself to be humbled. So A, let's talk about the place of our humility. The place of our humility. It says humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. So as we think, okay, where should I be humble? Well, where is the presence of the Lord? Everywhere, at all times. So if we are to humble ourselves in the presence of the Lord, we need to be humble all the time. We live before the face of God. The more we can stamp that into our minds, the more We can lay hold of this. And one of the commentators said, you cannot humble yourself. The flesh is not able to humble the flesh, but you do have the spirit of Christ indwelling you. And he is able to energize within your new man, a desire to humble yourself. And along with the desire, he provides the supernatural power enabling you to obey the command." You still have to make the personal decision to allow yourself to be humbled. For example, ladies, it is not just let go and let God. You just, well, if God's going to humble me, I guess he's going to come do it. I just got to sit here and wait quietly. But, and I love this, it's not let go and let God. It's let God and let's go. I love that. Let God and let's go. But now you can do so. So now you can allow yourself to be humbled with a supernaturally enabled desire and power. So we have the place of our humility. Let's also talk about the result of our humility. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you, he says in verse 10. Augustine said, the proud hilltops let the rain run off, but the lowly valleys are richly watered. And I love that. Just that refreshing rain goes down into the valleys. So this picture is that of someone. So this, he exalting you there's a mental picture there in this phrase of someone laying prostrate, so completely on the ground, face down. So so back in ancient days, that was the only appropriate way. You never allowed your head to be taller than the head of the king. So the lower you went, the more favor that garnered with the king. So often people would lay prostrate, face down, not even raise their eyes to the king. So this has the mindset of someone laying face down before a monarch begging mercy. And the monarch leans down from the throne and lifts the petitioner's face from the dust. The person rises with grateful joy, knowing he or she is forgiven. So as we are thinking through that exaltation, that is the exaltation we are looking for. Not the he made my circumstances go away like I wanted him to. He made my life easier like I wanted him to. It's no, he has forgiven me. He has given me strength to obey. So one more thing, Andrew Murray helps us wrap our minds around this. He says, The great lack of our spiritual life is that we need more of God. We have accepted salvation as his gift but we have not comprehended that the object of our salvation and in its chief blessing is to bring us into that close relationship with God for which we were created and in which our glory in eternity will be found. All that God has done in making a covenant for his people is designed to teach them to trust in him, to delight in him and to be one with him. It cannot be otherwise. If God is indeed the very fountain of goodness and glory, of beauty and blessedness, then the more we have of his presence, the more we conform to his will, the more we are engaged in his service, the more we have him ruling and working in us, the more truly happy we will be. If God is indeed the owner and author of life and strength, of holiness and happiness, and can alone give and work this in us, then the more we trust and depend on him, the stronger and holier and happier we shall be. The only true life is the one that brings us every day nearer to God and makes us give up everything to have more of him. No obedience can be too strict, no dependence too absolute, no confidence too implicit to a person who is learning to count God himself, his chief good, and his exceeding joy. So ladies, as we move forward, as we start looking at those disciplines, that's our heart for you and for ourselves. No obedience is too strict. No discipline cannot be at least improved, conquered for Christ's sake to please our loving Heavenly Father. So let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have given us your word. We thank you for these six commands for us to mull over as James lays it out for his readers and to us today today. Might we think deeply about our own submission, our resisting of the devil, our drawing near to you. Lord, help us to cleanse and purify. Help us to mourn and weep over our sin appropriately. Lord, that we might live lives pleasing to you. Might we lay ourselves down at your feet, seeking your forgiveness where needed. And then have great joy in the mercy and the grace that you pour out on us. And then let us get up to serve you again with that joy. Help us, Lord, we are needy people who need you. Lord, we are women who face the enemy day after day. I pray that we would... Never be proud in it. Never be self sufficient. That we would submit to you and that we would stand firm. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen.